Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me today, my friend from the great white north, Chris Chapman. Chris, how are you? Doing really well. Really great to be here. So last time we saw each other, we were up in Winnipeg uh, in the in the dead of winter. Uh, dead of winter? It was early winter. All right, early for, <laughs> for someone from... Uh, I guess the U.S. It was more like dead of winter, for, but for you guys, it was just like eh, you were going from. It, it's it probably still felt like summer to you, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, it's the, it's the early taste. Uh, you know, if if you're a fan of uh, uh, Game of Thrones, that's uh, we still say winter is coming. It wasn't there yet. Not not quite. No, it was a uh, but a lovely conference. We were up at C Deck uh, 2015. I think we were both talking up there. I uh, had a great time meeting a lot of our Canadian friends up there, so it was a really good time up there. Chris taught me quite a bit about Canadian beer, craft brewing, and poutine. <laughs> and, I, and I think, uh, for those of you who don't know what poutine is, it's french fries with gravy, which was the, the most bizarre combination I had ever seen until I tried it, and then it was amazing. <laughs> yep. That's one of our, it's not, not, so, uh, not so secret secrets. I think yeah. everybody has to try it here. We've got food trucks dedicated to it here. It, it's wonderful. I, I strongly recommend it if you have the opportunity to try it. I just I wouldn't eat it every day or else uh, your clothes will stop fitting. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, great conference up there. And so many people, Chris, they may not be aware um, of s many of the great things you've done in the Agile community. I like to think of you as the fifth beetle when it comes to the no estimates conversation. You're certainly... Uh, one of the founders, one of the, the critical thinkers, one of the, the motivators behind it. But uh, you're typically uh, in the background on this. So I don't think most people realize your involvement in that. But you're also one of the, the more premier lean thinkers out there. 
uh, contributing quite a few insightful things, especially on Twitter and in other places. Can you give people just a little bit of your background, perhaps introduce uh, yourself to the to the more to the U.S. crowd that listens to this podcast and uh, just give them a little background about yourself and some of the things that you're into. Okay, sure. Um, for myself, I've been in the industry since 99. And that was right around the time that I started messing around with, uh, with these, this newfangled agile stuff. So I started getting into XP as one of my first frameworks that I started learning. And a few short years later, I got into Scrum. Now, the backdrop to all of that was, of course, that I was doing development. So I cut my teeth uh, pretty much in the .NET uh, Microsoft stack world and made my way along. Probably the most recent uh, or the last engagements that I would have had with uh, when I was working for an employer in a company was in 2010, and that was for Microsoft and their consulting services. Um, so since that time, I've been independent, founded my own uh, consultancy called Derailier Consulting, and uh, I've been providing coaching services, helping teams and organizations transform and adopt lean and agile practices ever since. Um, so I've, I'm also working with a great group of guys, a uh, great group of coaches up here since 2013, and collectively we're known as Lean Into It. Uh, some of our members include uh, prominent speakers like Jason Little, uh, Mike Edwards, uh, Declan Whelan, Sean Button, uh, Andrew Annett, uh, Sue Johnson. So we provide uh, coaching and consultative services for uh, transformations in the uh, greater Toronto area. So all around Lake Ontario, the Golden Horseshoe. <laughs> Wonderful. And clearly, I'm, I'm sure many of the listeners have heard of a number of the people that, that you mentioned just now. So in great company, and you're certainly one of the pioneers. When it comes to no estimates, so this is a, a topic that comes up on the podcast uh, pretty often. It's one that we like to talk about from time to time, especially when, when we can get... <coughs> Uh, some of the the founding people and some of the original thinkers, you know, around that topic on the show. You know, for you, since what I find is many people have many different ways of looking at it. When you think of no estimates, you know, how do you frame it? What are you really after? And what are some of the practices that you've seen that have, that have helped companies and teams and people uh, succeed by perhaps not necessarily relying on estimates uh, so much? For me, no estimates. Uh, it's kind of interesting the way that you introduced me as the fifth beetle, because I, I definitely have felt uh, a bit of the interloper uh, f uh, in that community because uh, I discovered it quite by accident. So this is, this is going back a good few years ago when it was just a hashtag on Twitter and it was a conversation point. And through that, that's how I got to know Woody Zool, Vasco Duarte, uh, and Neil uh, Killick. Um, who I consider pretty much, they are the premier uh, doers, the thinkers and the doers. And I was intrigued by what they were doing because it was intersecting at a time when I was working with teams and I was beginning to feel a little bit challenged, a little bit, well, maybe disillusioned as well with some of the common core practices that we were getting into. It seemed to follow into a, uh, you know, a very set rhythm where if you're using Scrum, you're trying to you know, plan releases, you're trying to give, uh, give executives, give uh, decision makers um, the ability to learn, to know what they needed to, uh, you know, how could they do something? Uh, how, how much is this effort going to cost? And we found that that was not really, uh, it was, wasn't really effective. It seemed to always be coming back to the same problem over and over again. Either we were 
exceeding our, um, our schedule still, or we were spending a lot of time trying to attenuate to become more predictable, it seemed that we weren't asking the right questions um, to become more effective. So when I began exploring no estimates and thinking about different ways of delivering, so- uh, delivering software projects, it was serendipity that led me to conversations with folks like Woody, especially. Uh, and, uh, and I think I did an interview uh, with uh, Neil on his blog that he later published. I think you can still look up the, uh, the title. I think it says, Chris Chapman interviews me about no estimates. And it's where I began to try to see where was this alignment? What was this all about? So for me, it was exploring options. Um, and I think that really falls in Neil's uh, bailiwick, how he looks at uh, no estimates as well. How do we provide um, different decision points for business uh, that don't rely on making arbitrary guesses uh, by throwing a dart at a calendar. Yeah, I think it's an interesting way to look at it. I know it's one that uh, the especially Neil has been you know writing about. We'll be sure to get the interview that you guys did posted up on on these show notes as well, because I, I I've read that article and it, it certainly is a good one and, and one of the a great introductions to the topic. Actually, it's probably one of the better posts to get people acquainted with no estimates, but. So when it comes to actually working with teams and talking to executives about reducing the dependency on estimation, or, or as you put it, you know, resisting the urge to throw a dart at a calendar, you know, how do those conversations go? You know, how do you, what kind of traction are you getting with those ideas? And are you seeing any, uh, any forward motion or any, any forward movement as you try to, to, to bring this kind of mindset to perhaps more traditional organizations and, and teams? So it really depends on the organization. I find some, uh, you know, for example, I'm, I'm working with a, fi- uh, a customer in the financial services industry right now, and they are very much uh, dominated by a project management PMI mindset. It's a very difficult thing to let go of culturally um, to say, let's explore other options besides dates, arbitrary dates, of course. Fixed dates, regulatory dates, dates that where we have to meet a certain uh, reporting structure for, uh, um, you know, for shareholders, things that have purpose and meaning. Those are not bad dates. Um, where we get ourselves into trouble is when we try to forecast out how accurate we can be for delivering a certain a certain basket of functionality. In terms of getting the conversations started, one of the ways that I've often had of broaching the, the topic. Uh, sometimes it, it, it works, sometimes it doesn't. But to the executives, I often ask them, do you have a daughter or a son who's getting married uh, next year? Let's just say that your daughter is wanting to uh, have an outdoor wedding. And I know this because my wife and I, when we got married some years back, uh, we planned an outdoor wedding just north of Toronto in, in uh, an area called Cottage Country in the Muskokas. And you're taking an enormous gamble. You're hoping that the weather and everything is going to work out right. All that you've got to tell you about how that date in June, July, or August is going to work out is how it's worked in the past. We have some reliable metrics. We may be able to try and forecast that, but we get better and better data as we get closer and closer to the date. That's kind of how I think about no estimates when I want to broach the topic of thinking about a different way to probabilistically um, be able to make decisions better. What if I can get you something sooner so that you can begin to make more effective decisions now versus waiting until later. Um, that's generally where I, I, I find myself most gravitated toward in the no estimates conversation. In some ways, I'm lucky enough to work with um, 
I have a customer in uh, telecom where we got them trained up. Um, they had an option of using either Kanban or Scrum. They went Scrum. And I don't even bother estimating with points with them. If I'm getting the team started up, I'm largely looking at first habituating the team to be able to size work to fit a short time period and seeing measuring, seeing how we do. You know, how many features were we able to deliver? Three? Great. Um, you know, is that solid three or is that a shaky three? And then I work from there. Um, I found myself now, I don't even use point scale estimation with teams. I just look to the team to guide me. Tell me, how is the work sliced? How is it feeling? And this is, of course, where we get into all sorts of other conversations. There's heavy influences from Neil here about using slicing heuristics and uh, being able to determine how much work you can do on an ongoing basis, depending on your capability. Yeah, there, there's a lot of things in there. I, I think uh, a yeah. word that, <laughs> that you pulled that, uh, that I totally agree with is sooner. So I, the tendency I, I find is that let's do things faster. Let's do things, um, you know, get these things as quickly as possible. But the word sooner, I think it's a nuanced word. And I think it's very important in an agile context. And it might be worth a few minutes here to spin through it a bit. You know, when you say sooner, I think what you're talking about is really enhancing feedback loops. So let's, yes. let's get work delivered. Let's get feedback on that work. Let's make sure we're still doing the right things. And then we can spiral that forecast in based on, on these pieces of work that we've delivered. That's correct. Yeah. Give you a great example right now with the, so the financial services customer I've got right now, they're still in their infancy and in making their steps progressing through an agile transformation. So I wouldn't even say they're near being no estimates. Um, but part of the start of the conversation is they've come to me and they said, well, for the application that we're responsible for delivering, um, it has to go in these three stages. We get all of the requirements in one two-week sprint. Then we get all of the data in another one. And then we map the data. And then we present the data. And I said, there's I've had product owners tell me point blank, there is absolutely no way that we can deliver anything sooner than that. And that's right where I, when I hear that, that's right where I like to get stuck in and challenge that and start pulling on, let's, let's get some of your better developers in here. Let's challenge that notion. What would happen if we could reduce this by two thirds and begin to show your uh, stakeholders information faster what would that, how would that change the conversation right now with respect to the decisions that are being made above you? Um, they're still not quite confident that that's even possible. These are early days, but these are the kind of conversations that I like to provoke around the word sooner. What is the shortest period of time um, where I can begin to show something that's tangible, that allows us to make a new decision going forward? Um, and this is where we get into thinking about a backlog. What I like is it changes the characteristic of the backlog from being this honey-do list that we increment through uh, to one where we have options, uh, where we can have a series of hypotheses or experiments inside of that backlog where we can test an idea and begin to choose new paths. That, to me, is really getting back to what is the core of being Agile? What did the Agile manifesto set out to what was the journey it was setting us all out on? I think this is it. Yeah, and at the at the heart of it is, I think, uh, a few things. Experimentation and continuous improvement. And, and those are two things that shine through as you talk about trying to get uh, teams and, and individuals to look at the at 
at what's possible. <clears throat> you know, you're generating insights based on work that's delivered. You're trying to get more work delivered sooner so that you can generate more insights and really break down what's myth and what's fact and, and what's possible. And, and really, what are we allowing uh, the way that we've always done it? You know, how are we allowing that mindset to really block us from from the next great leap in, in our practices and in the way that we approach work. So I think from that perspective, you know, your your take on no estimates is really, it's an enabler. It's not necessarily uh, up upending the PMO and ending all uh, project management practices as we know it. It sounds like more to me that, that you're really looking to generate insights, challenge a few things that people hold, you know, challenge the purple cows or, or as Seth Snowden would say it, or, or yeah. the sacred cow as uh, yeah. as more traditionally known. Challenge those, see if we can slaughter a few of them and deliver work in a different and more effective way. And I think that's a message that regardless of your stance on the no estimates topic, I think those are things that everyone can get behind. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, I think you and I both know, uh, and certainly folks who may have followed the hashtag for a while, uh, no estimates is, a, is designed to provoke thinking. The hashtag there was some, there was a lot of debate about whether that was the right phrasing to use because if you talk to any of them, uh, you know, whether Woody, Vasco, or Neil, um, they, they would all tell you that the first step to thinking in an estimates way isn't to just stop estimating. Just like uh, I find rather, rather funny that uh, there's a parallel to when the, the Agile Manifesto came out, there was this belief that, you know, to be Agile, the first thing you did was stop documenting and just start coding. Right. Um, it, it's a naive approach, right? It's, uh, it's a little, it's much more deep and, um, there's no one set path. This is what's interested me about, uh, the community and the thinking that's emerged since then that, that, uh, that, the, that the three of them have sparked. So there are different, uh, thoughts and philosophies. Um, you take Woody's approach where he asked a, a rather interesting question. Um, what if you discovered that, um, an estimate had no value? what would you do? That provoked in me uh, a, a subsequent follow-on question, which I think I asked, this is a couple of years ago, a few years ago now when I asked it, which was, what's the ROI of an estimate? <laughs> if we're investing all of this time and money and energy in, in, in this, how do we know we've gotten anything back from that estimate? Um, and the, the simple fact of the matter is, is that if you haven't structured your backlog in a way or your your basket of work, whether it's BRDs or use cases or whatever, in a way that you could actually measure, you're not going to know that. Um, the way that we've been set up traditionally, we can't possibly know that. And that's what's really interesting is that uh, no estimates began to really pull me in a, in a different direction uh, where I became much more concerned with the Kanban side of, uh, uh, of uh, systems thinking, if you will, for software projects where I wanted to know, okay, well, if I need to measure, I, I suddenly need to be aware of things like lead time, cycle time. Um, I need to know at what rate am I taking work on? What is my work in process? Um, and how fast am I closing it off? Uh, this all of a sudden begins to, when you start understanding a system at this level, all of a sudden no estimate starts making um, a startling amount of sense. Yeah, certainly. I, I think when you look at uh, especially cumulative flow diagrams as opposed to burn down charts, I think w I think when you make that distinction, uh, no estimate starts making a lot of sense. And what I mean by that is you know, when you start studying uh, throughput, 
you know, count the number of stories you're getting done in a, in a given period of time, whether right. that's a, a sprint or some other uh, demarcation. Right. Suddenly, it, it, suddenly the estimate really wasn't that important. It's really, as you were s- discussing earlier, your ability to slice work uh, to a meaningful size that fits within that cadence that you've established and then counting it. And you can use yeah. that count to do a yeah. forecast. And what I love about this approach and what I love about the, the especially the angle that you and Neil take on, on this topic is the estimate becomes a byproduct of the work. Yeah. And that's how it's supposed to be. The, the manifesto tells us our, our number one goal is to uh, continually deliver software of value that delights the customer. Uh, I, I butchered it, but that's in essence what it is, <laughs> what it's supposed to be. And yeah. so we are delivering software, but we're also giving the product owner or the stakeholder or the person writing the checks a means by which to forecast the work because we're getting good at slicing and we're counting our stories and we're and we and we can forecast that out over over a number of weeks, months, however long, depending on the size of the backlog. And I think that's an important point that most people miss is, you know, is that still estimation? Debatable. I think some people argue yes, some people argue no. But the point is we've pushed that work to be a byproduct of actually delivering, which is what we're supposed to be doing in the fo- in the in the first place. Yeah, and that's that's where I see the uh, it's a subtle shift of phrase to go from saying estimates to forecast, um, because that way intentionally you're con- uh, conversing with your customer in a way that you're understanding what the odds are. Um, for landing something. I think even if you look at, uh, I really like uh, Henrik Nyberg's uh, product ownership in a nutshell uh, video that he's got on YouTube. Um, he basically describes uh, kind of a, a mashup of Scrum and uh, and Kanban for product owners. Uh, it's a 15-minute video to get them quickly ramped. But he actually has, towards the end of that video, he describes how to forecast your backlog uh, probabilistically, to say what is an optimistic range, what is a pessimistic range, and then based on where the customer feels it's important, if he's date-driven, and you say, what could we get from there? You'd say, well, based on how we've been delivering so far, we deliver three to five items uh, per iteration. This is where you would land, probabilistically. We'll know more later on, but that's something. Can you make a decision around that? And that's where it really, it, that's what I think is probably the most uh, most important uh, 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 thing to give to customers. I think they've been asking for that. The reason that we get pressed into a corner to say, how much will this entire effort cost is because we've been, we have a horrible track record. Um, we have proven ourselves uh, as an industry, maybe not all of us individually. Some of us have had some greater successes and lesser, but as an industry, we've got a track record of, of being quite abysmal and over-promising, under-delivering. If we are able to change that conversation to say, we can deliver in shorter time scales, and we'll provide you a forecast going out to dates that are meaningful to you and have an ongoing conversation about what is possible, I think that begins to change a lot of the dynamic that, um, that we've been wanting to have with customers. That was the original promise of Agile. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, more with Chris Chapman. Agile Dev East is the premier industry event covering the latest techniques and topics in the Agile universe. Learn both foundational knowledge and new methodologies to develop skills, supercharge knowledge, and re-energize your career growth. This year's event will take place November 13th through the 18th in Orlando, Florida. 
As an added bonus, the event is co-located with Better Software and DevOps East conferences. Your one registration automatically gives you access to all three programs. This means you can choose from over 100 learning and networking opportunities to build a customized week of learning that fits you and your organization's specific needs. Explore the program at adceast.techwell.com. Also, don't miss the Agile Leadership Summit at the end of the conference. The summit is a full day of in-depth discussions about increasing leadership mastery with the opportunity to learn new ways to challenge your personal leadership growth and to lead in your organizational challenges. Agile for Humans listeners use code AFH16 to receive $200 off their conference registration fees. Register by the September 16th super early bird deadline for combined savings of up to $600 off at adceast.techwell.com. It's it's alignment, and that's where I, I usually fall to in these conversations. We become aligned with the needs of the business. We become aligned with meeting the needs that they present, and suddenly we're not having these kind of uh, knockdown, drag-out uh, estimate conversations anymore. And they become a little bit more meaningful to say, well, what is it that we really want to build? What is it that we really want to accomplish? Um, you know, are we just throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks? Or are we actually looking to explore value for our customers? And I think that becomes the, the when you shift the conversation to to that, all of a sudden, customers and stakeholders begin to think a little differently. They're habituated to being disappointed. So they're, they're used to throwing everything they can at us and saying, just do it and do it in less time um, because they're so used to being disappointed. When we shift towards saying, I've got value for you. Um, we have these options we could begin to explore to, to find out if we are actually, uh, you know, delighting our customers and we could try different things. I think that that's a whole different whole different feeling when you start working with a customer in that way. They, they get actually excited about working with you that way. Well, and, and they finally trust us, which is the other other half of the equation. We finally yeah. get we finally get that that trust and that that feeling of wow, they actually believe what we're saying and we're going to deliver on that and it's a, it's a wonderful collaboration. So I I hope that uh you know, I I appreciate you walking through some of these ideas cuz I we've we've taken a few run at these and uh I I'm definitely in, in alignment with what, uh, with what you and Neil put down. And, and even with Woody and Vasco, I think the ideas are so wonderfully diverse that you can pull from a lot of different sources. And, and for me, and I don't know about you, Chris, but let's say that the, even the whole theory behind it's wrong. If we get two or three good ideas, or if it pushes us towards throughput as opposed to velocity, I still think it's a pretty big win. I, I would agree with that. Um, I found perhaps, you know, like it was quite surprising to see the negative reaction that came from thinking differently. And uh, it, was, it was rather astonishing because, uh, you know, the, the negative critiques of this were that, at least in the early days, that this was some form of uh, charlatanism. Um, it was designed to, you know, create a whole new industry for consulting um, you know, I, I remember even a couple of, uh, there was a couple of guys on Twitter, I can't remember their names, but they were, they were literally threatening saying, if, if this becomes a thing, I'm going to hold you personally accountable for what happens. <laughs> I found this rather amusing because to me, this is how we began to, I was quite excited about this because at the time for me, the agile manifesto was beginning to feel a little moribund. Um, 
customers were, and I think even coaches and consultants were beginning to drift into a, a malaise where we were conflating the manifesto with Scrum and Scrum with the manifesto, and we weren't learning and we weren't advancing. Sure, we had some you know, arguments about, is the manifesto right? Is it wrong? Should we amend it? Should it have more to it? Um, but all of a sudden, this new way of thinking came about, and it went right back to the principles. I said, this is what we were intending to do in the first place. And, and seeing um, figures, for example, like uh, Ron Jeffries, uh, find a lot of simpatico with uh, with what uh, was emerging in the community, even writing and blogging about it. Um, I don't think he, I don't think he's ever come down hard on one side or the other, but I think he's definitely more aligned to what was being exposed by the no estimates side. He's still got some criticisms, but you know we're we're beginning to awaken a different dialogue that's even even occurring amongst uh, even some of the signatories. Yeah. It. It's always a, a, encouraging when you see other people in the industry pick up these ideas. I know that, as you mentioned, Ron Jeffries has written a number of No Estimates posts on, on his blog site. Uh, Joanna Rothman has dedicated chapters of her more recent books yeah. uh, to yeah. No Estimates. Tobias Mayer has been talking about uh, No Estimates for uh, a number of years in his writings and, and articles and, and books. So it it's really starting to take a hold into uh, the thought space of, of many of the of our of leaders in our agile community, and you know, with Vasco Duarte publishing the No Estimates book, with Woody Zool uh, doing his mob programming and No Estimates uh, workshops. Yep. I mean, it, yep. it's it's just wonderful ideas spreading, and it's it's great to see. It's great to see that a purely agile idea can actually get some legs in this uh, heavily uh, consultant-driven uh, world, <laughs> as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And so that's why I found, uh, I found it very exciting. Like it's refreshing and it began to open my eyes to different ways of thinking and it rejuvenated my career. I'll tell you that. Well, and, and that's a great thing to, when that happens, it, it's one of those, uh, one of those moments you try to bottle and save because you need that every once in a while, but it's, it's great to hear that. Something that you've also been keying in on throughout this entire discussion is a, uh, <laughs> is a lean kind of influence to the way of your thinking. Wondering if you could go into, because I know that you're, you're you're very focused in the in the lean uh, mindset and world, especially at the executive level right, right now. And I think it's very interesting, especially to, to me and our listeners, about you know how is lean taking hold at the executive level? What kind of successes and perhaps barriers are you seeing? And what do you think's on, on the forefront of bringing lean thinking? Uh, to to company executives and and their management teams. Well, I'll, um, there's a number of answers I can give to this. Um, I'm going to plug for my uh, my colleague Jason Little um, because he's written the book on lean change uh, for executives and for organizations. Yeah. So um, just so that uh, listeners are aware, so he Jason Little wrote uh, Lean Change Management. It's a uh, a wonderful, I believe it's a yellow-covered book. We'll get a link to it in the show notes. Um, I've read it a number of times, and Jason has, I think, laid out a, a wonderful way to initiate change within organizations. So it's a highly recommended book by, uh, by me, at least. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so reading Jason's book, working with Jason on, uh, on a couple of engagements, that's been sort of an influence for me in, in thinking about well, how do we pursue actually changing the thinking at the management level? So Jason's very concerned with lean change. How do you begin the thought process um, 
of shifting an entire organization towards an adoption of a different way of, of working. And for him, he uses the principles of lean, um, which is low, low cost, low effort, but potentially high value, high return or high learning opportunities um, to begin to open up channels uh, for conversation and for doing things differently. That's a tandem, I find. I, I mention this because this is something that's kind of like a traveling companion for the other influences in my thinking and working with executives. Um, for me, what, uh, what I've begun to infuse my coaching and my consulting with, uh, with organizations and uh, managers and directors and, uh, and VPs is looking at how the organization itself is structured to enable teams to do better. So very often what we find, um, especially for myself and my colleagues within Lean Into It, um, our first exposure to a company is often through their team. And we are asked, hey, can you uh, teach, our, teach us Scrum, teach us Kanban, teach us Lean, um, teach us how to do continuous deployment, continuous integration, TDD. Um, and we're very happy to do so. Um, but one thing that we've noticed through successive engagements is that the team is not really where it begins and ends. It's part of the story. It's a valuable part of the story, um, but it, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And very often what we find is we run into a condition we call local optimization. So in, in systems thinking, we're always, of course, concerned about um, how does an organization and all of its constituents' parts and how they interact with each other how does that actually work? And what we found is that when you start looking at a team, a team is actually probably the best information radiator you have for the context or the organization itself, how healthy it operates. Um, so if you see a team that is plowing through some dysfunctions, they're dealing with high workloads, uh, high whip limits, um, it's almost like looking at Conway's Law for an organization. Uh, of course, Conway's Law is uh, the... Uh, the, uh, the principle that we can infer an organization structure by looking at source code, you can begin to divinate from that how the interpersonal relationships and reporting structures work just by looking at how it grew. Um, we find that the teams themselves behave in the same way. Um, they radiate outward how healthy the organization is, and it drives a conversation to begin to have with the, with the executives about, hey, how could we improve this? How could we change things? So at the core of lean thinking, um, it's coupled with an, uh, an appreciation for understanding systems and how they operate, but also beginning to think about how we put, um, as uh, Taichi Ono uh, put forward in the Toyota production system, respect for people, respect for humanity. How does it begin there? How are we respecting uh, the people that are working for us um, and the processes we're expecting them to complete for us? So when you start showing executives how the systems of work even outside of the teams are impacting their teams. Are there light bulb moments or is it disbelief? You know, what are you seeing when you actually bring uh, some of these impacts and issues to light? Some are excited almost immediately um, because for some of them, if they, um, if they are pre predisposed, like a lot of executives are, are quite intelligent people and they enjoy, they enjoy intellectual pursuits so it, it reaches them on an intellectual level that this is looking at something in a fundamentally different way with a different set of eyes 
and it has the potential to be able to alter fundamentally uh, how they perceive that organization working. Uh, some of them get quite excited about it. Some, it's like talking about the Agile Manifesto um, or talking about Scrum. It, it's not necessarily relevant to them just yet. So in, in certain instances, I take a soft approach to how I coach that. And so generally how I work is uh, I work through a series of homework uh, exercises. I'll often leave an article for an executive to read. I'll say, let's, let's have a coaching session on, for example, uh, Ralph Stair's article on how I learned to let my workers lead. For, uh, he was the CEO of uh, Johnsonville Foods back in the 1980s. So a very simple fundamental principle about taking authority and driving it down towards information where, uh, you know, to the people who actually uh, have the most information or are most capable in understanding how to transform the work. I begin to use that to kind of open the door to a more in-depth conversation about, okay, well, how could we begin to look at this problem a little bit more differently? Um, Why have we got our team structured this way? Why have we got our reporting structures this way? And what does that actually mean from when we have an idea here to where it goes through to the team and becomes a, a, a concept or it becomes a working product, sorry, at the, at the tail end? How does that actually impact this? Yeah, it's an interesting discussion that, that I've had a number of times as well. And what, I, <coughs> what, I've, what I have found interesting is that when you can get to that level of thinking, when you can get to the, the broader organization uh, you start to see, and I always come back to this, and it seems to, to be stuck in my head, but it, it comes back to that alignment where it's not just uh, individuals and then at the team level and then perhaps at a, at, a, at a group level that are getting aligned with their customer, but suddenly the organization is going to align to delivering product. And, it, and it's a fascinating transformation if you can make it happen. It's, it's awfully painful to try to develop software in an environment if you can't make that happen. But uh, these lean ideas, uh, I think, are important, and they are transforming the way that, uh, that we're doing work. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. I've been very heavily influenced by going back to some of the fundamental readings you know, behind Scrum with uh, Takeuchi and Nanaka, looking at uh, Taichi Ono, uh, Shichi Shingo, W.E. Deming, of course. I've, I've even tried to bring in um, a a large portion of Deming into my coaching and consultation practice now um, to give leaders thinking tools for how do I understand, how do I operate in this mode? And uh, I really like uh, Deming's system of profound knowledge in this respect because it provides a really great roadmap where you can begin to um, introduce new thinking concepts. So uh, for, uh, for the listeners who may not be familiar, um, Profound knowledge, Deming broke it down. He said there are four things that uh, as managers and as owners we need to be cognizant of. First thing is we have to understand or appreciate what a system is. So we need to have some systems thinking. We have to understand variation. So how do systems vary and how do we know when they varied? So you get into some interesting stuff about, you know, when is the system showing us common cause variation versus special cause? Because that's often what a lot of management is about, is trying to fix things that really are just signals from the system about how it usually operates versus when it's operating in a poor context. We need to understand how we acquire knowledge. So how do human beings learn and process information? 
that gets us into talking about hypotheses and the scientific process. And then we have to have some knowledge about psychology. So what is uh, the psychology of teams? What are the psychologies of, uh, uh, of individuals? And you'll find, I think, a lot of agile coaching really falls into the domain of understanding probably the bottom two domains the most. It's the theory of knowledge and uh, psychology. I'm trying to bring in some of the systems thinking and variation thinking to complement that. So for the, for the listeners out there, can you provide kind of an example of a system that you've had to do some analysis on, perhaps how it was impacting the team that was trying to deliver work and some of the things and insights that you generated to, to help the executives uh, understand exactly what was going on and, and how that system was, was either positively or negatively, depending on which example you go with, uh, how, how, it was, how it was impacting that team. Yeah, so I apologize for this because in my mind, um, there's a lot of fluidity in a lot of the... I'm netting together actually a lot of different uh, concepts uh, all at once. So there's lean with respect to what we understand from the Toyota production system and the thinking that Taiichi Ono pioneered. But from that, it's a natural uh, move to step towards Deming where we get into total uh, statistical quality management uh, using statistics and measurement to understand systems. And then there's a little bit of also, just to throw another name in the mix, there's Eli Goldratt and Theory of Constraints, which begins to play in this space as well. It all forms a system of thinking. I don't tend to ha- I, you know, like there's not a lot of instances where I'll hit an executive over the head with this per se, but I will use it to change uh, my coaching conversations. Very frequently what I will do, just to give you some, some insights and examples, a couple of customers that I've had in the, in the telecom space revolves around largely... The, we can't just improve a team, just to keep it very simple. Why are the team improvements not yielding what we expected them to, uh, to improve? So I'll often have the, uh, the conversation with, the, uh, with managers and with directors, for example, which are very much aligned to what Deming spoke about, quality. Where does quality begin? Uh, for, he, he would often say it begins in the boardroom. So the teams can only achieve the maximum of what we allow them to achieve. And that very, that's a very simple conversation to, to open to, uh, uh, to a director or to a senior level manager. Say, well, we're seeing that the team has these, this potential to actually begin to change how they are delivering. But one thing that we've heard is that they have a dependency in the organization that makes their lead time effectively two to three months. And that's not leading to any satisfaction for our customers. Why have we got this large dependency that's beginning to occur here? And we begin to explore, well, we made some decisions. The reason that that's occurring is because we do a lot of work uh, with a third-party vendor, and they're responsible for doing this. Interesting. Okay, well, let's explore that. Um, what is the relationship that we have with the vendor? Is now we're beginning to shape the conversation around it's not just what's happening in the company, but by extension, what's happening with the company's vendor suppliers. This was something that uh, when you... Uh, look into the readings of Deming and especially Taichi Ono, they were very concerned with because they realized that the factory gates was not just the end of the system. It was a boundary, but you had an extension into other other companies as well if you depended upon them. So now you're starting to think of things in, in a term of flow. It's either flow of material, flow of product, flow of information, uh, flow of people. Um, now you're starting to really uh, understand things that they are not just um, isolated pieces of a puzzle that operate, whether, you know, 
rain or shine and with no no consequence to, to anything else, they're actually very interrelated. That's where I, with this particular telecom customer, that's where I began to have this conversation because I was saying, we're not seeing any improvements right now. And there's uh, the team is getting more and more frustrated. I think we know why this is beginning to occur. It's not a problem with the team. Throwing Scrum or Kanban at the team is not going to make them succeed anymore without a lot of uh, a lot of help from you. Yeah, and, and that's usually a hard conversation to have, but it's an important one. I, I find that um, it's the difference between trying to drop a methodology onto a company that isn't ready for it and actually trying to take a look at the systems of work in place that are preventing and keeping people from, from bringing their best work forward, addressing those first, and then trying to optimize how software is delivered. Is that a, is that a fair way to look at it? Yeah, I, I, I think so. It's... it's um it's realizing, well, so one of the ways that we actually approach uh, engagements uh, for myself and for, for my colleagues that lean into it, definitely embracing a philosophy, especially myself, that management has to go first. If you're expecting an organization to change the way that it works, it's not sufficient to drive this disc down and make it a, an improvement project with a particular team. It actually has to be something that is owned and led by management. And if you're expecting your teams to adopt Scrum or Kanban or Lean, you have to show how you're making a similar step forward to enable that to happen. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that your executive tier is all of a sudden going to start meeting in Scrums. They could, and some do, but it could mean that they're changing their philosophy of work, um, that they are becoming more uh, considerate to respect for people and looking for improvements uh, they may be uh, doing gembas to get out and see how the work is done. Uh, they may be, um, you know, implementing kaizen uh, within the organization as a form of continuous improvement. And these are things that exist supra framework. I mean, they, they tend to be framework agnostic. So we're not even talking about whether you're using Scrum or, or Kanban or Lean. You're actually beginning to embrace what it really means to improve. So clearly, Jason Little's book is, is a great resource for people to learn a lot about this approach. Are there any others that you keep you know, right by you and, and with you at all times as you're, you're working through these, these issues and organizations that have, that have helped shape your thinking, that have helped to, to really craft and, and hone the way that you, you approach organizations now? Definitely. Big influence books include things like uh, Mike Rother's book, Toyota Kata. So there, what that describes is, so Mike spent a lot of time. He, he worked with Toyota, worked for Toyota, consulted to, began to learn while he was there. What, what did they do? How did they think and act? What was their philosophy towards improvement? And it took him a good long while to finally understand that there is something subtle happening within the organization to how they approach problems and problem solving in a systematic way. Um, very interesting book uh, with, with respect to that. Also, huge epiphanies for me with respect to understanding lean at a much more fundamental level. Uh, really, really, really excellent book. Can't recommend it more. Um, definitely Deming's books. They're chewy. Uh, you know, so I've read Out of the Crisis. Um, there's, uh, there's actually a collection of, of essays of his. It's called The Essential Deming. Uh, Leadership Principles from the Father of Quality. It's a um, really, really good book as well because it, it makes it more concise what he was talking about. But I've also got influences um, in a lot of other areas as well. So, uh, for example, 
Uh, I look at how lean is implemented in other industries like healthcare. I've been very keen to follow the writings of Dr. John Toussaint. He wrote a book recently that's called Management on the Mend, which was uh, basically how he approached lean thinking and a lean transformation at, uh, at his healthcare group uh, that he was the CEO of. It was called ThetaCare. Definitely Mark Graben's book on uh, lean hospitals. I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to uh, get a, a, a purchase a copy from him. His third edition has just come out. Cracking good read um, because even if you're not even if you're not really keen on transforming a hospital, everything that Mark talks about in that book is gold. Uh, it is a great overview of lean and lean thinking practices. Um, so I'm finding I'm, I'm carrying that book with me everywhere I go. Um, because in my world, of course, being in lean agile coaching uh, on, with software teams, carrying a book about hospitals, people immediately want to know, hey, what's, what's that about? What, 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 what could hospitals possibly teach us in the software world? Um, many, many more. Uh, you know, Phoenix Project, uh, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. Um, really, really good book about Pixar and sort of the approaches to how transformation in a creative industry occurred. Huge influence there. I could go on and on. Yeah, that's the problem with uh, <laughs> with Agilus, right? Our our bookshelves are, are overflowing with books, but I a lot of great ones there. Many of them I have not read, so I'll, I'll be definitely picking some up uh, on Amazon here soon. But, but thank you for that, and uh, thanks for those recommendations. So, Chris, we are at... Uh, the point in the show where it is uh, it is your opportunity to plug anything that you have going on, uh, anything that you'd like to get in front of the listeners. I will say uh, that you and, you and your group of colleagues that lean into it, a, a just a top-notch group of uh, thinkers, consultants, uh, leaders, and, and, and servants to teams. You know, uh, Sue especially have spent some time with her at a number of conferences. Just a wonderful person to be around. I love uh, my opportunities to talk to Sue. Jason, of course, uh, wonderful transformational thinker. Uh, his book is excellent. If you haven't read it, it'll be in the show notes. Please do pick it up. Uh, Declan is a great, great uh, transformation instigator and someone who really makes you think and, and dig into things. And of course, Chris, uh, the wealth of, of knowledge that you bring to the forefront, especially on lean thinking and getting down to the root of systems and, and how they impact teams and and just modify behavior and the things that we need to do to to adjust those to get the best work possible from people and to enable them to do uh, great things. I, I just think that you guys bring so much to the Agile community. Uh, it's just a wonderful group. So thank you for that. And, and thank you for sharing your thoughts. But at this point, like I said, it's your opportunity. Feel free to plug away. Are you speaking anywhere? Is there anything, anything else you want to get in front of the listeners? And uh, how can they continue the conversation with you? Well, so they can immediately car carry on the conversation with me on Twitter. I'm on that Probably that, that's my most frequent social, uh, social network medium that I use. So you can find me at, at Derailleur Agile. So that's D-E-R-A-I-L-L-E-U-R, -E -E Agile. Uh, if you get lost about that, it's the bicycle part. Um, <laughs> so I know that in America you say Derailleur. Uh, in in, in uh, Quebec they say Derailleur. They have a, a wonderful pronunciation for it. Um, but yeah, definitely get a hold of me that way. Um, it's probably the best medium. Um, speaking engagements right now, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take a bit of a break. Um, I'm probably not going to be speaking until uh, the conference that was formerly known as ESTEC 
um, which is now called, uh, I guess, Deliver, uh, Prairie DevCon Deliver, uh, which Steve uh, Rajowski is still going to be um, hosting and putting forward. So I'm, I've got four or five ideas in front of Steve right now. I'm hoping one of them gets picked up. Um, probably also speaking at uh, Toronto Agile, uh, Toronto Agile Conference. Uh, that's going to be coming up in November as well. Um, I think that's about it. I'm not, I'm deliberately trying to take a bit of a break because I'm wanting to focus on some other projects. Uh, definitely one part of it that I, uh, is getting more into, uh, some more deliberate study and thought around, um, how to, uh, how to bring lean to my customers. So I find that I've got a lot of depth on the software side. I don't have a lot of depth on the lean side beyond what I've read and studied. So that's what I'm going to be doing now. Uh, probably for the next couple of months. Well, that sounds great. Great. So, Chris, thank you again for joining us. Uh, this has been a lot of fun getting to just dig into some no estimates, uh, digging into some lean, and uh, just kicking back. We haven't we hadn't talked in a while, and, and so I'm glad we had the opportunity to chat. As for me, I'm presenting at the TechWell conference this year. I think you guys heard uh, towards the middle of the show uh, some great information about what's coming up. Be sure to use the AFH16 discount code if you plan on attending in Orlando later this year. It's a great conference. Really enjoy presenting there. I really am excited to present uh, a half-day Scrum workshop along with the Business of Agile, Better, Faster, Cheaper. Uh, two fun talks. I hope to see as many of you out there as possible. You know, Just as Chris and I just had a, a, a great talk about many different topics, many advanced topics like no estimates, lean, deming, Kanban, you know, those conversations happen out at the TechWell conferences. It's one of my favorite parts of the conference, just the ability to have these kind of conversations with a diverse group of people. Uh, just a really great time, and I hope to see as many of you out there as possible. Other than that, I really just want to say thank you to the listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. The numbers look great uh, as far as downloads and listenership goes. That means all of you are helping and supporting the show, and I can't thank all of you enough. With that said, that wraps up this episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Thanks again, everyone, and have a great night. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and Scrum on.